This is Bob Frisch, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? So uh, I'm Bob Frisch, and uh, I'm the managing partner of a small firm uh, that uh, designs and facilitates strategy offsites for senior executive teams. So when a team gets together to talk about uh, what do the next five years look like or what initiatives are most important or uh, mission, vision, values, or uh, do we have a strong value proposition, the kinds of things that people talk about when they have a strategy conversation, we design and facilitate those meetings. Uh, and they often turn into other kinds of small strategy projects, but we tend to work almost exclusively in the strategy alignment space with large corporations, both here and abroad. And you, you have been there and done that in a variety of different industries, both from, from leading um, divisions and Fortune 500 companies to consulting with, with the same large organizations. And now um, your, your first book, Who's in the Room, is out. I, w- I want to ask, what, what inspired the venture into, into writing and what inspired the actual the book itself? Well, I, I'd done a couple of Harvard Business Review articles, um, uh, one on strategy offsites and one on team decision-making. Uh, and, uh, and this originally started as another HBR article. Um, and when I started to develop it, I, I, and, and as, as many people have said, there's a lot of business books out there that should have been a Harvard Business Review article and sort of stopped at that. Um, and I can't disagree with that. Um, but, but in this case, I think there was just uh, more content and, and more thought and, and more ideas than could fit into the, the 4,000-word format of, a, of an HBR article. Uh, there, was, there was something sort of bigger here. And also, I wanted to do some more research. I wanted to really dig in from the observations I'd made and really try to understand what was going on uh, where I was noticing this, this gap between the official um, uh, organization chart process flow version of how decisions are made and what was really happening at the tops of organizations. So we started doing interviews. We interviewed 15 CEOs. Uh, and uh, members of their executive teams and talked about how decisions are made inside their organization. So between the, the length and the content and the amount of research, it kind of evolved from an article into a book over time. Hmm. I, I love that uh, that, that soundbite that there are a lot of business books that should be uh, Harvard Business Review articles. I totally agree. I get a lot of books on <laughs> I, I get a lot of books on my desk, and we, we when I was in my uh, doctoral program, we kind of had this thing where we realized you could read about the first three chapters of a book, and then you get it. The rest is just data. So, right. So, you know, there's two companies that that uh, that abstract books. Uh, one is Get Abstracts, and one is called uh, Soundview Executive Book Summaries. And corporations subscribe to these for their executives, and every month they get a, a couple of you know eight page digests. Of, of what is contained in a business book. Actually, Soundview has picked, picked Who's in the Room as one of the 30 books that they're going to do this year for their subscribers. But frankly, if you read that, that eight-page summary of a business book, you can get a lot of the content of what's in the book. Um, you know, a lot of books are written around one or two core ideas, and, and that's what people do. In, in this case, though, I, I really felt like there was... There was uh, there was more to say than would fit in that context and uh, of an article. We did do an article in uh, in the December Harvard Business Review that 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 is uh, that is taken from the book, 
Uh, but uh, you know, hopefully, there's more in the book than the article. But they're complementary. Oh no, absolutely. And the bo- the book itself is actually a relatively it's it's not. I don't I don't want to say it's a quick read in the sense that it's short, but it's a quick read in that it's it's fast paced and you get a lot. And I I didn't really get the impression there was extraneous details as there are in, in several of the books that I come across. I, I kind of, I, I should confess, I don't know if I've ever told this to the listeners, but I'll do it on uh, with our, our interview. I basically decide who gets the podcast interview. Uh, if I finish the book, then there's a pretty good chance I want to interview them because that means there was enough detail. Uh, well, uh, it's, you know, I, I originally uh, thought about it. You know, there's a lot of different formats of business books now. And some are, are, you know, bigger than an article, but smaller than a full book. Uh, uh, Harvard Business School Press does a, a line of those, uh, primarily by consultants. Um, and, and I decided this is probably uh, a one airplane ride book if the airplane ride was JFK to LAX, um, you know, or, or, uh, or Boston to London. Uh, you know, so I, I wanted a book that, you know, wasn't necessarily one sitting but something that people wouldn't spend, you know, two months slogging through. You know, the audience that I'm looking for uh, are people who read a lot. A typical senior executive brings, you know, a binder full of reading home every night. And I wanted to have something that wasn't going to be onerous and that was, you know, that would move along and people would finish and say, you know, it, that was very interesting and it wasn't too painful to read. Um, so if, if I got that with you, then I accomplished what I was looking for. Oh no, absolutely, and I, I, um, it, I'll be honest. It, the the thing that really intrigues me is you take a, a rather contrarian view to a lot of what, um, for lack of a better term, feel good consultants kind of say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was trying to be contrarian. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. And it, it all kind of centers around this idea of senior leadership teams versus uh, what you call kitchen cabinets, and and what they are, and how they they differ from each other, and how in a lot of organizations that cause causes tension. And so most of the feel goods say, well, that means we need to do away with this and we need to respect the senior leadership. And you say, no, let them, let them exist. So if you could talk about a little bit about the difference between those two teams, how they come to exist and, and why they should still, they should both exist in an organization. Okay. Well, we have three big questions packed in there. So oh, I, yeah, no. I'll try to answer all three. And if I, if I don't, you'll roll me back and put me back on course. So, well, so or the they'll just have to buy the book. <laughs> well, that's too. But I'd like to get them a lot of, you know, this should be a lot of value in listening to a podcast. This is an investment of people's valuable time. Um, so, so the first observation, if you look at the website or the annual report or the org chart of almost any organization, it doesn't have to be a Fortune 500 company, there's almost invariably some team that is the boss in their direct reports. Uh, 8, 10, 15 people, you see their faces on the websites of every large corporation, and they often have a name that goes along with their standing and status in the organization. It's the management committee, it's the executive council, it's the strategy council, it's some group that is the people who are the senior decision-making body of the organization. And it's true of almost every organization. They have this formal body, and they are the group that is in the process flow of all of the major decisions. Everything goes through this body. And they are representative of the whole organization. All of the major functions are there. All the major divisions are there. And, and these are what I, you know, sort of like, you know, the, the, in the mythical thing, the gods in Olympus up in their toga and their sandals who think big thoughts and make big decisions. 
And this is the group, by the way, that's at Strategy Offsite. So I spend a lot of time with groups like this over the years and, and a lot of time helping companies work through decisions. If you actually peel it back and you say to those people, okay, so when, when, when Fred, the CEO, makes big decisions, he gets all of you in a room and you all debate the pros and cons and then you all make decisions together. That's how it works, right? They'll say that's not how it works. When Fred wants to make a big decision, he tends to rely on Bill and Mary. There may be one or two other people there, but time after time, he's got a couple of people who really are the inner core around the the senior executive, who really are the people that he trusts the most, who he takes most big decisions by, and really their opinion is what matters. That's, That's the group he really turns to. That difference between the formal group and the informal group uh, is not new. The the phrase kitchen cabinet for the informal group actually comes from politics, comes from the Andrew Jackson administration, where he had his cabinet, the Secretary of Treasury, and at that time Secretary of War and Secretary of State, and they were called the parlor cabinet. We would call the living room, the the one that people see from the street, the one that is official. And then he had his kitchen cabinet, his cronies who'd get together with cigars and a, and a glass of brandy, whatever President Jackson did in his personal life. And, and those people ran the country. And at the time, it was a very negative thing. It was a really pejorative expression against President Jackson that, that he and this group of cronies behind closed doors ran the country. But the fact is, it's not a negative thing. It's not a pejorative thing. It's how leaders work. When, it, when a leader has a tough decision to make, time after time, the good ones, and almost everyone, has a small group of people whose opinions they trust they go to and seek their advice and counsel before they make a big decision. And the gap between the reality of how executives make decisions and the myth of what the org chart and the web uh, uh, sites say that this is the senior decision-making body and these 14 people are the ones who make the big decisions for the company, that gap creates problems. And for 20 or 30 years, we've been throwing psychologists into that problem set with very, very little positive outcome. And so you're right. I, I don't say get rid of the kitchen cabinet. I say acknowledge the fact that having a small group of trusted advisors is part and parcel of how good leaders make decisions. An example that I would use is, for those of us of a certain age, we remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was only seven, happened 50 years ago. But, but there's a, in, in, in the 1960s, there was a, a problem with Russia had, was putting missiles off, nuclear missiles in Cuba. And for about 13 days in October, it looked like the world was going to come to nuclear war. And during that time, President Kennedy turned time after time after time to one person for advice. And that person was his brother, Bobby Kennedy. Now, Bobby Kennedy at the time was Attorney General. He wasn't Secretary of Defense. He wasn't Secretary of State. He wasn't our ambassador to the UN. He wasn't ambassador to Russia. Of all the cabinet officials, except maybe agriculture, the Secretary of uh, uh, the Secretary of the Attorney General is not necessarily by title the person who'd be involved in, a, in, a, in, a, in an international you know, nuclear incident, right? But Bobby Kennedy was the person that President John Kennedy trusted most. 
and he's the person he turned to for advice for the most momentous decision of his administration. People have an inner core of advisors, and that's a reality of how leaders lead. And I think we need to incorporate that reality into the way we think about leadership decision-making and not sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, and it's it's ironic as I was reading it. Um, you know, I kind of I kind of read through it, started reading the book, and thought it was you know interesting or whatever. And then about halfway through, I sent an email um, to uh, your publicist and said, "I've got to get him on the podcast because he says the same thing that I say in my you, you, your book is about the same thing I say in my org behavior class, which is you know we teach leader member exchange theory in group out group. You know that there's an in group yes. and an out group, and that's that's all the theory that's all the theory says. But a lot of people try and build on that and say, well, clearly we need to get everyone in the leaders in group. Well, that's impossible. And that's the rant that I go on every every semester in my org behavior class, that it's impossible. So the idea is figure out who needs to be in your in-group and then figure out who's in your out-group and, and get to a state of kind of comfort where you just know what's expected of you and what's not and that that sort of thing, which which kind of begs the next question then. You're, you're a senior leader of an organization. You know you're going to have a kitchen cabinet or an in-group, et cetera. But how do, you, how do you build it, make sure it's the right team? And then I guess the follow-up to that, I know I'm lobbing questions at you over and over again, no. is how do, you make, how do you make sure that the, the senior leadership team kind of plays nice when they're not on that team? Okay. Well, well first of all, let me, let me give one um, – it's not a disagreement, but, but let me amplify one point. So I don't think there's two groups a senior management team in a kitchen cabinet. I think the best leaders actually have a whole portfolio of groups around them, a whole palette to paint from when they have to make decisions. Some are, some are permanent, some are temporary, some are official, some are unofficial. Some groups may only last one phone call, and some groups may have been in existence for 10 years with, with different people coming on and off them. Uh, I think the best leaders don't say, I have two groups, and how do I use them? I think they say, look, I've got various kinds of decisions I have to make. What is the right group of people to turn to to help me make the best decision on this particular issue or this kind of issues? And if I have a group that that's a natural for that group, good, put it on their agenda. And if I don't, let me put together an ad hoc group to look at this particular acquisition or look at this particular question or address this particular issue. And then when I'm done, I'll disband the group and I'll call another group of people to come together and help me with another decision. I think it's a much more fluid, dynamic leadership environment that the best leaders put around them and not a couple of one-size-fits-all groups and everything gets dumped onto their agenda. And that's a that's a good distinction. I, I guess I I have the tendency to try and see it in the in the realm of what the theorists said, uh, you know, 40 years ago with just in group out group. But I, you're absolutely right. I think there's the best way to do it is to have, I, I, in essence, multiple in groups and know who to tap in, in certain times and that sort of a thing. Well, and so, that's but, exactly the point. You asked the you know your second question before is well well what happens to the senior management team? So it, so if I'm not going to turn to every member of the senior management team every time I'm making every decision, right, is there a purpose to the senior management team? And, and I'd like to make another distinction I'd, I'd like your listeners to think about, which is the senior management team is not necessarily and shouldn't be the senior decision-making body of a company, right? That's my thesis. At the same time, they are a group of the senior decision makers of the company. 
They're the people who had the functions. They're the people who had the divisions. They're a very critical group. And the fact that they're all together at one table and you have this incredible expertise and experience and you have the whole company coming together around the table at one time, that's a tremendously powerful thing. It's a tremendously powerful group. There's a lot of important things that that group needs to be doing. But if we think of them as influencing, implementing, participating in, having a role in decisions, but they're not necessarily a decision-making body, that opens up a whole realm of opportunities and really reframes how you maximize the impact that that group can have. And and I see again there's the uh, there's the contrarian the deliberately contrarian stance in the sense that you know a lot of the feel good uh, consultants and feel good theorists say oh no 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 it needs to be participatory as as democratic as you can get it and that sort of thing but again I, I look at you know an organization where decisions matter which is pretty much any military organization and it more describes what what you're describing which is that there are several people involved in teams right I mean I, I think. I think, you know, one of the reasons, I guess, as you put it, I'm deliberately contrarian is that, um, uh, you know, A, I think they're wrong. <laughs> and B, <laughs> I, I, think there's a, I think there's a political correctness that has come into our culture that is permeating into the way we think that organizations ought to be led. And I personally think it's completely inappropriate. I'll give you an example. I don't think that, by and large, groups are accountable for decisions in businesses. I think people, individuals, are accountable for decisions in businesses. So I think it's important that I hear people's input. I think it's important that I hear what people say. I want to understand what you all under, you know, what you all believe and what you think I ought to do. But at the end of the day, when you look at racy charting or other ways that we think about how we talk about responsibility and accountability in organizations, accountability tends to rely, uh, tends to lie with people, not with groups. It tends to lie with leaders. I've never heard a situation where somebody was given the leadership of a business, say, you know, Mary, you're going to go run this division. And by the way, I want your group to do a good job. I want your team to make good decisions. I'm holding your team accountable to do this. I think it's not team. It's like, Mary, I'm giving you this job. You're accountable. You're responsible. I hope you do a good job. And by the way, I hope you have a team around you that supports you in doing that job well. But I I think we're scared to talk about individual accountability for decision-making, but that's the reality. That's how it works. So we should have structures that reflect that. Oh no, I I think you're right, and that's why I love the deliberately contrarian. Uh, I look at I look at a military organization, and it's exactly that. You have the people yeah. that are that have to make the decision, and then you have other you know other uh, lesser ranked people involved in giving influence. But ultimately, it comes down to whoever the the senior commanding officer is, and and everything else is about commander's intent. After that, you know, it's not about what you wanted to do with your team. It's about what does the commander want to accomplish. I, I will tell you, you know, it's another article and another book and hopefully another visit to your podcast. But it, I also have a very contrarian view around matrixed organizations. And one of my opening comments in the discussion, which you would allude to, I think, as well, is show me a matrixed army. Hmm. Show me one matrixed military organization. Right? 
show me, I mean, you look at an org chart of a military organization and it's a pyramid, right? It looks just what, you know, Jethro set up for Moses in the Bible, right? It's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pyramid-shaped structure. It's the oldest organization form we have. But matrixed organizations make it very hard to find a locus of accountability for decisions. And when you're running an army and when you're running a corporation, one of the things you need to find is who is the individual who is accountable for X. And matrices make it very hard to mask accountabilities. And, and I think accountability is very important. And I think that leaders need to be accountable and hold people accountable. And, and because individuals have accountability, I think it's important they put structures around them that help them make the best decisions. Leaders are paid to make good decisions, whether it's personnel decisions or capital allocation decisions or decisions of what marketing campaign. People are paid and rise up through organizations based on the quality of the decisions that they make. And, and I think we need to have organizations that are optimized to good decision-making. Yeah. Now, I, perhaps it's the it's the theorist academic in me, but I, I love the idea of the matrix organization. <laughs> but when you really, but it's true when you really dig into the research, one of the things you find is that when there are when there are resources to protect, when there are decisions to be made, um, when there are are things that need to be held accountable to, you you have to begin to centralize a little bit. You know, Occupy Wall Street was great for accomplishing this idea of sending the message that we're mad about stuff. But as soon as it was, you need to change this. You need to enter some sort of a uh, a more centralized form because somebody needs to be accountable for guiding the direction of that organization. You, you see it time and time again in those matrix organizations. Eventually, they have to become more centralized if they want to actually start a- achieving strategic objectives. Well, it's funny. I know at Leader Lab you run uh, both. Uh, you know, you have your podcasts. You run. The, you run the blog. You have the site. And I would love to have a vehicle to take a poll of the people who are listening to this who actually work inside matrix organizations and ask the simple question, do matrix organizations enhance or do they, do they not enhance good decision-making in companies? And I think it would be interesting to see what the outcome of that would be. Um, matrix organizations look great on paper, but for a lot of people who are trying to actually run a business and make a profit inside a matrix, a lot of them are a living hell. And they'll oh, tell you that. Yeah, no, and that's the that's the the hidden lesson tucked in. I mean, as as early as we started talking about matrix organizations, I think about the starfish and the spider, and the, the first thing that that they tell you is that eventually, every in, in order to increase efficiency, every matrix organization starts to centralize a little bit. And and if you're going up against or competing with a matrix, you know, give them some resources to uh, to have to defend. Give them some reason to centralize, and they'll immediately start to do so. Now, the funny uh, thing too is it is not the topic of of the book, but when I sit with the senior leadership team. And 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 we and you know we have various employee surveys and stuff. Sometimes we're talking about the topic of org structure, and and some of the um, the pain of, uh, of of working in a matrix begins to bubble up, and and some people are dismissive because again on paper it looks great, it ought to work fine. And I look around the room and say, who here has two bosses? And of course none of them do. At the top of the organization, it's not a matrix, right? The top of the org chart isn't matrixed. It only gets matrixed at the third and fourth level down, right? They all have a boss. The boss is the CEO. 
the boss reports to a board. None of them are operating inside a matrix. They're all on top of the matrix. So, um, so some of the, you know, the, the, it's easy to sell in because the people who are selling the idea of a matrix are selling it to people who aren't themselves operating a situation. I have a client where people have three bosses, not dotted lines. They have three solid line relationships, right? They have three bosses at a, at a given moment. And I can't imagine trying to get my work done and have three different people who, who by, by the way, they themselves have different incentives. One is geographic, one is product line, and one is by function, right? I have three different people telling me what to do, each of whom has themselves different masters, right? And they are pulling me in three different directions. How the heck am I supposed to get my job done? But that's a topic for another day. My, I guess the last question then is I, I think the big distinction, whether it's, it's matrix or, or it's this you know, traditional democratized senior – I shouldn't say traditional, the newer traditional democratized senior management team or the, the reality traditional that it all falls on one person. The, the real message is whatever, however the decisions are made, the structure and the understanding in the organization needs to match that. And, and how do we go about doing that? If we have a, a senior management team and we have different people that get pulled from for certain decisions, how, how do we get an organization that may be thinking that the senior management team is supposed to make decisions, how do we get them comfortable with the idea that they may not be tapped for individual decisions? It's a, it's a very good question. I mean, I think the first thing is to talk about what the senior management team really does need to do. Because if you start by saying, here's, here's what your role isn't, and by the way, they don't have to be told. People on the senior management don't, team don't have to be told, by the way, I'm not going to be looking to you, um, you know, to, to have a one-on-one -on -one before I make every decision because they know that already. The reality of the existence of the kitchen cabinet is not a surprise to members of the senior management team. It may be a surprise to their subordinates, but it's not a surprise to them. I think the first thing to do is say, what is a senior management team really good at? What are they really uniquely positioned to do? And I see three fundamental roles for the senior management team. The first is to develop a common view about where the organization's headed and how it's going to get there. I mean, whether you call it a vision or a strategy, whatever it may be, they need to all be in line with where we're headed and what the key things we need to do to accomplish it are. Otherwise, they're going to go run their parts of the organization and not have consistency in their own decision-making. So what creates consistency among that group and the people who work for them is a common understanding of where we're going and how we're going to achieve those goals. The second thing is the sponsorship of a limited set of strategic initiatives. When we look at organizations, we do an inventory of initiatives. We've been at organizations where we found 175 active initiatives taking place. Things happening, task forces, committees, whatever it may be, over and above people doing their day-to-day -day jobs. That's an extraordinary number. And if you're doing 175, I guarantee you're not doing 175 well. What are the six or eight or ten key things that we collectively need to accomplish that go beyond the boundaries of anybody's individual functional area? What are the things we collectively need to do? And are we organized to do them? Do we have resources? Do we have metrics? Do we have deadlines? Do we have deliverables? Have we structured a key set of strategic initiatives that everybody understands is under the sponsorship 
of the CEO and the senior management team. The third thing is dependency management. Are we moving our resources around? Are we allocating our resources correctly to get the things done that we need to do? You know, I'm I'm a, a fairly big critic as well of the business case process. A business case comes up, uh, senior management team approves it, we all agree this is what's going to happen, and then three months, six months, nine down, down the road, they're not getting the resources, they're not getting the plant capacity, and they're not getting the sales force's attention, they're not getting the things they need to do to succeed. And you can often roll back the root cause of that to the fact that when it was approved, everybody thought it was a good idea, but nobody talked about what was going to have to happen to appropriately resource it beyond the incremental resources asked for in the business case. The fact is, a business case doesn't include everything that needs to happen. It includes usually incremental spend, incremental resources. You're also depending on existing people to do things to make the business case or make that plant expansion or a new marketing plan or new sales force uh, growth. You're counting on existing people to support that. And the senior management team has to be sure that resources are being deployed correctly to make things happen. As, as one of the, as Jim Noble, who's quoted in the book, used to be the, the, uh, the CIO of, of Merrill Lynch and Altria, as, as Jim said, our senior management team doesn't talk about whether we should be doing things. That's, that's usually decided by a smaller group. Our senior management team spends their time figuring out how are we going to get it done. That's a very different question. So I think the creation of vision, the, um, the definition and sponsorship of a limited number of key initiatives, and the management of the dependencies to make sure that the important things are getting done by getting the resources moved around the organization appropriately, those are things that really only the senior management team can do. And if they focus their time on those things as opposed to where are we going to hold the company picnic, then the companies could be much better off. And 14 people don't need to spend a half hour talking about, I got off the phone with somebody, they actually had as a senior management team topic, are we going to have a hypnotist at the senior at the leadership team meeting? Now, there's a good discussion about whether a hypnotist is appropriate to have on stage at a, at a leadership team meeting. But frankly, I think if you got the, you know, the appropriate executive from HR and the appropriate executive from legal maybe with the CEO for 15 minutes. You don't need the, the you don't need the the CIO and the head of every division weighing in on that question. Why would you spend 40 minutes of his senior management team agenda talking about whether they're having a hypnotist at the leadership team meeting? You got to be talking about the things that are important to growing the business. Oh, no, I th- I think the CIO is incredible. No, I'm just kidding. I I can't defend that one. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're exactly... But you know, if you look at a senior management team in most companies, it becomes sort of a, a a dumping ground for every decision, small and large, ends up going in front of the senior management team. And it's just their time is spent on really relatively, uh, not, I wouldn't say not useful, but decisions that could be made by, by a smaller group of people who have the expertise, and they should be spending their time on things that are really important, that they all be together and run the business. Hmm. And, and I think there's some great, uh, great advice on how to kind of how to do that, how to waste less time in senior management meetings, but also make better decisions throughout the book. So I want to encourage the readers to uh, 
to check it out. There's also even a great case study of it um, at live in the middle of the book. It's a, it's a fast-paced read. That's the, that's the word I'm looking for. It's not a short <laughs> read, but it's a fast-paced read. Um, I, w- I want to switch over to you for our last question. What are you reading right now? <laughs> well, one of the nice things about having, having moved over to the iPad um, is that you can actually carry many, many books with you at any given time. You, so you don't have to, you know, physically carry, you know, the, you know, you don't have to have four books in your briefcase at any moment. Um, but the downside is it means you can be reading many things at the same time. So I'm actually reading three books right now. So uh, I'm reading How We Decide by Jonah Lehrer. Uh, he wrote a very, very interesting cover story in last month's Wired about sort of the neuroscience of decision making. And uh, this is his last book, not his current book. But uh, he's he's a very interesting person who talks about what happens in the brain as decision-making takes place. And I've never read a book like that before, and it's a new one. Um, I'm reading a, a wonderful book called Inside Apple. Um, and Inside Apple uh, is really a study of, of, of uh, how Apple uh, is run and was run under Steve, jo- Steve Jobs. It was written by um, Adam Lashinsky, who writes for Fortune magazine, and and it came out um, sort of on the heels of the Steve Jobs biography, so I think it probably didn't get as much visibility as it as it should have gotten at the time. Um, and uh, it's uh, but it's it's extremely um, well done, and it talks about a, a fairly unconventional form of leadership. Um, it's funny if I can digress for a moment. When Steve Jobs died, the business community sort of had our Lady Diana movement uh, moment, and there was this big outpouring, but I, I I started using Twitter about then, and so I I, I tweet occasionally, um, and so uh, one of the things I wrote when he died was, well, if Steve Jobs was such a great CEO, I think we have to change the curriculum of almost every business school in America, because we are not teaching people to lead like he led. Uh, so the question is, is he idiosyncratic? Or the things that can be derived from his leadership model. I think Inside Apple does a does a actually a very a very good job of of covering that. And then at any given moment, I try very hard uh, to be reading a little bit of fiction. I don't actually get much fiction done, uh, but so I will often take um, uh, you know I don't know it can take me you know six months uh, to get through a piece of fiction, um, but uh, but I do try to. Uh, Try to be uh, to be reading fiction at a given time. So I haven't yet decided on what the third thing is, but I'm um, actually have started. William Gibson is one of my favorite novelists, so I'm reading Zero History by William Gibson. But I got to admit that 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 book's been open uh, for a, for a very long time, and I think I'm about uh, a third of the way through. So I'm not plowing through my fiction as well as I could. But like many people, I'm you know my my reading diet has changed. Um, and so I'm spending much less time reading books. Um, and I'm spending a great deal of time um, reading blogs. Um, and uh, because I can carry a lot of different magazines and newspapers, I spend a lot more time with that. But um, uh, this is my first book, as you noted. And, and I was taking the Acela from Boston to Washington, uh, Washington, New York, rather, uh, two weeks ago. And I walked to the cafe car to get a cup of coffee. And I saw several hundred people, and not a single one was reading a book. Um, they all had pads or computers or but, but magazines, but nobody 
was reading a book. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I, um, I think we're, we're moving into an age where I'm not sure the book is the way that information is going to be communicated anymore. Um, but, uh, but I try to have a couple going at a time. What are you oh, reading? No, so I'm, I'm in a similar situation as you. I, I am reading a lot of different stuff on the iPad. Um, I actually, it's kind of funny that you mentioned how we decide because the book that is currently uh, got, I got through the uh, introduction and I'm ready to dig into is, is uh, Jonah Lear's new book on Imagine, the one on creativity. I do a well, lot I was of my. Gonna, I was going to read that, but because I hadn't read How We Decide, I figured I would start with that. No, no, it's a it's a great thing to do. How how we decide's great. I, I read it um, a little while ago, and he's a he's a great writer. He really is. And I do a lot of my academic research in the areas of creativity and innovation, and so it's always interesting to me to pick up kind of what the popular press take on it is. And I I have a theory that his will actually be a nice balance between what the research actually says about creativity and what um, and and something that appeals to the popular press. You know, I, the thing that I hate to see is. There's kind of myths surrounding creativity that it's sort of like the orbiting the giant hairball, freewheeling, almost hippie-like culture, and that's not what the research says. Any anybody can be creative. You just had to have to build the right uh, organization that brings it out. And so I'm I'm really excited about digging into that one. And and uh, I don't know if we'll get him on the podcast or not. We'll have to decide whether or not I finish the book. Funny, I'd never read any of his stuff. And then you know, Wired magazine did this one on you know, if you take a pill, can you forget traumatic things? That he that he wrote for the last uh, for last month's Wired, and I read this article. It's like, whoa, you know, this, like I like this guy's writing. I I like the way he looks at problems, and so I decided I would you know pick up one of his books. But it, it's you know it's it's a problem being you know being a, a reader with a with a Kindle or an iPad is like being a, you know a, a kid who's got a candy store in his backpack all the time. I mean, literally. The, the amount of the access to content now is so massive that you you really have to be careful or you can be drinking. And then there's a number, including yours, but there's a number of blogs that I try to check in with very regularly because a lot of the really interesting ideas now <clears throat> are really getting circulated in the blog sphere and not through books and articles. And, and a lot of people are spending a lot of time blogging and there's just great stuff there, but but keeping track of it and filtering it is um, at this point in the evolution of that is still a little bit immature. So the reader has to take in a lot of content, um, and then of course because of my work with clients, I mean I have to read the the Financial Times every day, the Wall Street Journal every day, the Economist every week. I mean there's things you just expected as an educated executive that that you are that you are reading because everybody else is reading them. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, the beauty of the iPad is that, that you can get them all on that one source with blog aggregators and then obviously the, the bookstores. And I, ironically, I think Steve Jobs would be mad, but ironically, I, I read more books on the Kindle app for the iPad than I do on the, uh, on the iPad proper. Bob, let me just uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me.